Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up This is the Church Politics Podcast Where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview We're not trying to be conservative or progressive We're trying to be Christian in the public square and I'm black as heaven, I'm made in God's image Nobody can change my settings Hey man, cut off my knees and put it into my search It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth With your no good, Ann Camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast With Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson And the Windy City representative The baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line My play cousin, the right reverend christopher butler well truth be told it's just me chris is not here today actually he's kind of here today kind of not so our schedules were different we have a great interview coming up with benjamin watson that's part of this um episode but chris did that by itself so we're doing this separately i'm gonna do the first few segments and then chris is gonna handle the interview with our man benjamin watson about his new book which you are gonna want to check out for sure but I hate to disappoint you. It's just me right now. Uh, We can talk about that some other time, but I think there's something really important for us to talk about, which is the NBA playoffs. Um, Those of you who have been following church politics for a while know that, you know, I'm not one, especially when it comes to uh, sports. I'm not one to say I I told you so. Um, I'm not one to try to rub it in when when folks fall and and lose and completely lose their self-respect, especially let's say a team were to get swept uh, after folks were all in my DMs, after I had friends, you know, ask me why I hadn't been talking about the Lakers recently because they won a few games. And then you go out there and get swept. And so for you guys that don't know what it means to get swept, it means you go into a series and you don't win a game at all. I can only imagine it. And my heart goes out to folks. I can only imagine how hurtful that had to be because the way it played out, I couldn't, you know, a Laker hater couldn't have written it better. You win a couple games, you win a series that you didn't even think you were going to win. And it gives you just enough hope to start selling wolf tickets, to start running your mouth and talking about how great your team is only at the end of the day to get swept. I can only imagine how that feels. And I just want to let y'all know that I'm there with you in spirit. And uh, I hope you recover soon. Anyway, on to uh, better conversations. I want to remind y'all about the uh, the Ann campaign's new new uh, new newsletter, which is the Invisible Institution or IVI newsletter. We have some great writers like Amos Jones, uh, John Richards, uh, yours truly and Chris Butler along with Jasmine Holmes and others that are writing for that newsletter. So the first issue came out last month. We got another issue coming out in June. The first issue came out this month. We got another issue coming out in June. You're going to want to check that out, especially leaders and pastors who are trying to get some intellectually honest commentary and points of view on culture and politics. 
check that out. As always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fesser Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Also want to give a shout out to our patrons on patreon.com slash church politics. Hey, guys, you know, it's not easy. It takes a lot of time and a lot of thought and resources to create this content. We need y'all support. As I said over and over again, we want y'all to be a part of the and campaign, not just stand on the sidelines. So spread the word. If you have even, you know, five dollars a month, we would appreciate your contribution because that's what makes this role. So you know what it is, folks. Uh, grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Uh, we're going to start this episode, at least this segment, off on uh, obviously what is a sober note. Um, I have a long list of Christian leaders who've influenced me uh, over the years. And then a short list of Christians who historically their work has helped my ministry and really has shaped the end campaign. Uh, there's really no other way to put it. Some of the some of the names on that short list are folks like Frederick Douglass, uh, Gardner C. Taylor, G.K. Chesterton, Fannie Lou Hamer, Dorothy Day, um, G.E. Patterson, Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner and Timothy Keller. Um, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, Keller went home uh, to be with the Lord on April 19th last week. Uh, the pastor, writer and theologian had suffered from, I believe it was pancreatic cancer for some time, um, had been re had been receiving treatment for that for, for quite a while. And let me say this. There are few Christians today who've had the kind of impact that Tim Keller has on the church. Um, in the Atlantic, uh, in an, I should say in an Atlantic article, Molly Worthen called him the most influential Christian apologist and evangelical leader in a generation. And that's saying a lot, but I think I agree with that. Um, he was very impactful, had a large influence on so many people. Um, she also said something that was interesting and I thought, I think, think she hit it on the head. Really good article. You should check it out. It'll be in the show notes. She said that he had two fundamental ideas that kind of propelled him. And the first was that biblical Christianity isn't a political position. He urged Christians to reject tidy alliances with Republican with Republicans and Democrats. That might sound familiar. Number two, the second idea that kind of propelled him was secular liberalism deserves critique. He showed us that secularism wasn't neutral or that it wasn't the obvious choice for thinkers. Uh, and he also really questioned our worship of personal autonomy or, or what we could call self-rule. And I would say this, folks, I would say that he was brilliant in how he addressed secular society. Uh, he was humble. He was patient. Uh, he was well read and he upheld the authority of scripture without simply Bible thumping. So especially coming out of, you know, the times of the moral majority and all these folks where there was a lot of Bible thumping, there was probably more um, people being strident than they were being careful and, and, and thoughtful. Uh, and he really 
took a different course, right? I mean, think about it. This was a guy who started a church in the center of secular America, Manhattan, New York. And it was a major success, not just in numbers, but in spreading his loving and truthful critique of the world. Now, one thing that I see with biblical or orthodox Christians who are in places like New York or who are in places like California, uh, sometimes we see them there because they feel so embattled. Sometimes they're the least likely people to really connect with the people around them because they do feel so embattled. But he was able to communicate with people, a professional class, folks who were who were kind of, had been drawn into secularism to communicate with them in a way where they saw what the gospel was truly about. And that only came through prayer. Uh, that only came from thoughtfulness and, and, and study. Um, and he did such an excellent job on that. And he never, even in the midst of all that secularism, he never changed his position on marriage or the sanctity of life. Never stood strong. He showed us why the gospel was better than these worldly ideologies. He helped us apply the gospel to our careers and our daily interactions to say this is not just something that we do in church. This is not just something that we do uh, or think about when we're in Bible study. It's something that we apply to what we do every single day. Not just with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but to everybody that we interact with. And I think he was maybe one of his best attributes that it was that he was so good at making complex issues accessible. Taking something that was or a part of aspect of the faith or an aspect of some other philosophy and boiling it down and, and putting it in terms that we could all understand and again, apply. Now, to be honest, and, and you guys probably have already figured this out, Tim Keller's work really helped me. It really helped me and, and the other folks who were involved in this make the and campaign's compassion and conviction framework substantive yet plain to make it clear and to make it stick he he did that so well and so many of the ways that he articulated it helped us do the same like some of his concepts we were trying to build on those biblical uh concepts uh whenever i shared the and campaign's framework Almost always I use one of his quotes. This is one of my favorite quotes. And you guys have probably heard me say it before. Love without truth is sentimentality. And truth without love is harshness. Such a profound thought. And I remember when I first read that, I was like, that's it. I had just read Ephesians 4, 14 through 15, where it says uh, that we're, we're supposed to be able to speak the truth in love. And then he kind of explains why that's necessary, because the love love without truth is not a godly love. Truth without love is not the truth. It's missing something. Those things work together. They're interdependent. And Tim Keller put such a uh, a good he, he made he made that make sense uh, in, a, in a way that, you know, a lot of other folks hadn't. And in the tradition of G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Uh, Lewis, he exposed the frailties and holes in progressivism with, with such precision. 
Uh, it spoke to Christians in the professional class and others in secular spaces who had started to think that progressivism was synonymous with intellect or, or being intellectual. But he didn't just attack progressivism. He just he didn't just say this is demonic, get away from it, and that's it. No, no, no. He he took the time to really understand it. To see what brought people to some of these leftward conclusions, to see what good people saw in what they thought they were embracing. He really took the time to do that. He took the time to wrestle with the left's best minds. He did not run from anybody. He did not treat them with intellectual dishonesty. He engaged it in an honest way. Then, seemingly with ease and and with great detail, he tell us where that fell short of the gospel. He could have easily, and on so many occasions, I'm sure, and, and I want to be clear, I didn't, I have communicated with him, and I'll talk about that a little later, but I can't say that I knew Timothy Keller. I knew his work, but I had communicated with him before. But what I was going to say is that he could have so easily, and so, on so many occasions, surrendered to the progressive pressures surrounding him, like so many of us are doing today. Like so many of us make excuses and rationalizations for doing today because we don't want to hold the tension. We don't want to live in the tension of love and truth. We don't want to live in the tension of social justice and moral order. And so we just give in to one side and we, you know, they give us excuses and reasons to do that. He could have easily went along with what felt compassionate or what the world was telling him was compassionate at the time, even though it wasn't biblical. And he refused to do that. And if he would have done it, more people probably would have known about him. He probably would have been celebrated amongst his academic peers and others. You see, a few years ago. Princeton University was about to honor him. And then some of the students and I guess some of the faculty got upset and they decided not to honor him because of some of his orthodox views on sexuality. And there are some of those some of us out there who, when presented with an opportunity to be honored or to have some type of position. Would have changed what we believe. But he didn't do that. He didn't whine. He didn't complain. He let them make his their decision. And he stood 10 toes down on the gospel. Not with what the age was telling him, not with what narratives were coming to him from one side or the other. He stood on what the Bible said. And I think he set a great example in doing that. He also exposed the faults, though, in ideological conservatism. The, the type of ideological conservatism that had captured so many white evangelicals, so many of his peers. He revealed how it fell short of the gospel's love and self-sacrifice imperative. And let me tell you, even till this day, after he's gone, there's heat coming from that. There's people that can't even uh, 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 lament that he's passed because they're so caught up on how he questioned conservatism and, and the... And really the compassion he showed to the left, even when he was telling them he was wrong. Um, He took concepts like forgiveness. Prayer. And marriage. And showed us why they were still relevant and essential in this age. He made us think about whether or not living for pleasure 
running around and doing what we wanted to do, pleasing ourselves, fulfilling our desires was really better than the commitment of covenant. He really made us this, made us sit down and assess that and not just accept the world's narrative that we were being given. And I know I personally have to thank him for that time to sit down and say, why is what God designed better than this distortion? Because in so many instances, it's the distortions that have narratives wrapped around them to make them seem that they are more than what they are. And we sit sometimes in brokenness and emptiness following narratives. We could have been following the truth, following the word. And Tim Keller had a heart to stop people from doing that, to speak into those moments and try to understand it and lead us uh, towards the word. And let me just say this as I conclude. There is a divisive idea out there that we can't learn from certain groups, namely white evangelicals, if we're just going to be straight up, uh, because of historic and more recent transgressions. Because of things that have been done in the American church, the majority church, some people have come to the conclusion that there's nothing to be learned from those spaces. But if you think for a moment that you can't learn, and let me say this, black and brown Christians have a lot to contribute to the kingdom. And part of part of the reason that some people are saying now white evangelicals don't have anything, anything to contribute is because white evangelicals, in many cases, have, have took the position that they're the only ones that have anything to contribute. I don't believe in returning the favor. I don't believe in just reversing that and, and, and saying now we're, we're even, now we're right. Because I will say that if you think for a moment that you can't learn from white evangelicals like Timothy Keller, like those who followed, who are following behind, following behind his footsteps in a way, Alan Noble, Tish Warren, Matt Chandler, Jake Meter. Then you've let identity become an idol. And you are wrong. You are as wrong as can be. Everybody in the Bible, different groups, every group within the kingdom. Has something to contribute. And if your identity or what you uh, want your identity to be keeps you from listening to people that are speaking straight out of the gospel and implying the gospel, then you are wrong. And we all need to think about that. And I think Tim Keller showed us why that is certainly true. Um, and let me end with this. A few years ago, maybe two years ago, I was surprised when I got a random email from Tim Keller saying that he appreciated my work. And it was at a time when I needed it the most, when I wasn't sure if, you know, the and campaign was being heard clearly, if it was connecting. And randomly, I get an email for someone who I've been reading for years and years saying, Justin, keep up the good work. I really am basically benefiting and enjoy your writing and the content that you're putting out. Um, he didn't have to do that. Um, but for him to be thoughtful enough to reach out and give that encouragement just tells you something about him. Um, and so I appreciate him for that. Like I said, I, I can't say that I knew him, 
but I was a beneficiary of his work and also his kindness and encouragement in that moment. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Rest in peace, Timothy Keller. Thank you. Uh, so on to the next uh, conversation. How do I bring this up? Well, let me say it this way. A couple of our patrons offered a critique of the show, which I must say was less than flattering. Right. Um, but I want to make sure that I still take it seriously. OK, what they were pointing out and it's just a couple people, what they were pointing out was that the Church Politics Podcast primarily cites progressive sources in our segments, so progressive media sources. Now, initially, um, I'm going to be honest with y'all, my pride kicked in a little bit, and I thought, how could they? Don't, don't they know what we're trying to do? Don't they know that we critique both sides? What are y'all talking about? You know, folks are always mad at something. Um, I was a bit offended, and I'm just trying to be transparent about that. But when I sat down and I examined it, I had to admit that they were right. I mean, when I looked through the show notes and saw what sources we were using, it was skewed to the left somewhat. So I had to admit that we do quote or use articles from the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, Politico um, and other leftward media more than conservative sources. OK, so y'all were right. I, you know, we get some criticisms that aren't fair. I think that criticism was fair. And I do think it's on us to try to write that. Now, I will say this just because we're quoting a more leftward from a more leftward source doesn't mean we're agreeing with it. A lot of times we are kind of giving factual information, but we have to understand that even sometimes that factual information can be skewed, can can be slanted. And so uh, we will try to. Uh, make sure that we're using more conservative sources as well. OK, I, I think that's a fair critique. And, and we want your critiques, especially those of you guys who are our patrons on Patreon dot com. Let us know what you think. Uh, let us you know, uh, let us um, hear uh, your feedback. And so we appreciate that. So so to the folks who mentioned that, I appreciate that we're taking it in, in, into um, consideration and we'll try to change that again. I don't think that it meant that 
uh, we were more leftward in our coverage, but the source matters. And so we want to we want to uh, pay attention to that. Now, this particular segment and the topic of this segment comes from a great center right source, which is Commentary Magazine, uh, which is led by my friend Ann Snyder. Uh, really appreciate her. Uh, this particular piece is called Have We Out Quixoteed Don Quixote? Uh, when satire becomes sentimentality, we just talked about sentimentality, relationships break down. And this is by John Eager. Now, I'm guessing that most of us read the classic novel Don Quixote back in the day, whether it was high school or whatever. Uh, and as Eager, and if you have, you would know that as Eager explains, Turtles and Snickers follow Don Quixote wherever he goes. He fights inanimate objects like windmills, believing they are giants. He thinks normal, dirty inns are castles and that their inhabitants are royalty. Quixote himself is satire, incapable of telling the difference between reality and illusion. So basically, Quixote goes around. He's a knight. He's fighting windmills. He's uh, thinking, you know, uh, toilets and all this other stuff are, are, are things that they're really not. But it kind of gives him purpose to see things for how he wants to see them. I, kinda, I think that's kind of what this is getting at now. Uh, Eager goes on to say, we struggle with the same tension today. What we take for reality turn out in postmodern and postmodernity to be illusory attempts at self-authorizing identity. The actions we take are geared toward ensuring that our identity is supported and strengthened. As a result, we harm others to shore up our sense of self. He goes on to say that Don Quixote does not reflect on right or wrong, but acts only on what he immediately takes as one or the other. There is no struggle of discernment, no wisdom of dialogue. Man, that's heavy. How often do we see ideological tribes when something happens or something they think something happened react based on how they took something and not really struggling to have discernment, to really figure out what was right or wrong. In fact, when it comes to ideological tribes, if you go on Twitter and you see a video and you don't have an immediate response, they attack you. If you're trying to figure out all the facts, if you're trying to make sure you understand exactly what the context was, you get attacked. It's almost like struggling, that struggle of discernment, that struggle to really understand what's right and wrong is a problem. I think he has a point here. He goes on to say this. The name for this uh, lack of struggle is sentimentality. Sentimentality is a shortcut, an attempt to acquire emotional satisfaction without any intervening emotional investment. His lack of struggle is an image of a sentimental life. Now, when we're just talking about Tim Keller, what did he say? Love without truth is sentimentality. These emotions without the truth, without the fact, the facts are sentimentality. Right. They're, they're, they're an emotion, but without any discernment, without any emotional investment, we just want to react and we want to react because our reaction forms and uh, kind of uh, 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 projects our identity. OK. 
Now, he also says it's comical and sometimes infuriating to see how little Quixote is aware of his surroundings. He sees only he sees only at a hyperbolic, hyperbolic, metaphorical, theoretical level, reducing everything to his view of what he wants it to be. Ooh, there is no complexity. Uh, there can't be any complexity to introduce any middle ground into Quixote's field of vision. Any third option would destroy his self-conception. This brother is on to something right here. He only sees at a, at a hyperbolic, metaphorical and theoretical level, reducing everything to his view of what he wants it to be. Is that not exactly what happens every day in our in our public discourse? We have these two tribes who, regardless of what happens, they're going to put their narrative over it so that it, it can, can serve their identity and what they want to see happen. There is no complexity. If you add complexity or if you say there is some nuance that destroys the self-conception. So if you believe that there's a battle between good and evil and progressives or conservatives are on one side or the other based on where you're coming from, if somebody introduces some nuance to say, well, it might not be that simple, that that, that kind of destroys who you think you are. Because if I tell you that, well, you might not be completely good and they might not be completely evil on this or that issue, you get attacked for that. Right. Oh, you're just you're just trying to find a, uh, 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 some kind of middle ground. Right. You're just not trying to take a position. No, I'm actually taking a position. I'm just saying it's not one of these two positions. And people react to that. Right. And in his sentimentality, it says Don Quixote wants to fight everything. This is so interesting because so much of our identity today is based on who we're fighting. And it goes along with the idea that I put out there some time ago, which is opposition centered politics. When we see something happen on social media or somewhere in the public square. Us attacking a certain group, whether we know all the facts or not, is a way to solidify or a way to, again, project our identity. Something happens. Okay, that was definitely white supremacy. Okay, that was definitely Marxism. Let me attack it. And in attacking it, I'm telling you who I am. Now, whether that attack is thoughtful, whether that attack is uh, 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 gracious, whether that attack uh, includes all the facts, doesn't matter. By attacking the right people, I'm showing you who I am and what my identity is. I'll end with this. He says, how often do we do the same as Don Quixote? How often do we cook up scenarios in order to derive some benefit to our identities? How often do we inconvenience others in order to structure a better narrative about ourselves? We care more about narratives than we do the facts. Sometimes it seems like we care more about our narratives than we do the redemption of others and the relationship and the dignity of others. He also asked, how often do we perceive things as threats simply because they threaten our picture of how we want to be perceived? 
guys, this is such an important point. And it goes back to, to some of the things that I learned from, from Tim Keller. The truth matters. And because we are broken, we have broken narratives. And when the truth conflicts with our narratives, Christians have to be honest enough to admit that. I don't care what I, I don't care what identity group you are in. Your narrative is in conflict with the truth at some point. And the question is, are you faithful enough to admit that? Are you faithful enough to admit when other people get things right? And can you define yourself by who you are in Christ rather than defining yourself by who you're against and who you're attacking and what fights you're either making up or what fights you could address better if you were to uh, come at it from a different posture. So interesting. Now, of course, not every fight is illusory. Not everything we see that needs to be confronted is illusory. But on so many, in so many instances, we can make things bigger than they are because what we do is we seek opportunities to attack certain people again to make sure that people see our identity, to, to, to go along with our sense of self. And the truth of the matter is that just is not biblical. So before you attack somebody, uh, so before you kind of uh, virtue signal or, or come at a certain group, think about why you're doing it. And I've said this over and over again, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll maintain it. When something happens and you're presented with a video or um, you're reading an article and it presents some facts to you, sit back and question it and think about it before you react. And anybody who tells you to, that you have to react or that you're doing something wrong by not automatically automatically reacting before you have all the facts or before you really thought it through is not helping you. They're trying to put you in a position, really, it's usually tribalistic, where you're just reacting in a way that goes along with their narrative and they want that to be immediate because when it comes to tribalism, thinking and self-examination are outlawed. Well, this is a really exciting part of the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, we are joined by um, the author of a new book, uh, The New Fight for Life, Roe, Race, and the Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. Uh, he's the Vice President of Strategic Relationships at the Human Coalition, uh, an organization that operates a network of telecare uh, and brick-and-mortar women's care centers across the country. Uh, he played 16 years, uh, 16 seasons in the NFL, and won a Super Bowl championship with the New England Patriots. Uh, he's the executive producer of Divided Hearts of America, a documentary uh, featuring uh, over 30 individuals on both sides of the abortion debate. He and his wife, Kirsten, in the midst of raising seven children, somehow find time uh, to host one of my wife's favorite podcasts, Why or Why Not with the Watsons. Uh, he's an author, uh, a great friend of the End Campaign, and it's just a tremendous, tremendous privilege uh, to be joined by Benjamin 
Watson. Welcome to the Church Politics Podcast, Benjamin. Man, it is an honor, honor to join you, Chris. Um, you know, I love what you and Justin do with the podcast, but also with the AND campaign. Been a friend of the AND campaign for some time now and really mm-hmm. respect all that you do. Such an encouragement. So, uh, man, it's an honor to join the podcast. Looking forward to this. Hey, thank you for being with us. So this uh, is book number two, I believe, uh, for you. Yeah, almost. Book number three. Book number three. But, uh, but who's counting? Hey, you know, I'm I'm just trying to keep up. Uh, so the the title is is super super compelling uh, to me, uh, and I would bet to a lot of church politics podcast listeners. Tell us uh, what the the what we can hope to get out of the book, and sort of why you decided to write it. Man, it's a lot of the things that I've actually learned and appreciated from you and Justin, and you know, in watching how you all navigate. So many difficult issues, uh, especially when it comes to the issue of life, um, human dignity, the sanctity of human life, the image of God, Imago Dei, and what that means when it comes to the issue of abortion, and even specifically abortion in the Black community. Um, this is something we can't, you know, really want to run away from. It's something that we have to address faithfully, but also holistically. And so I so appreciate you all's leadership and lead on this. And a year ago, June 24, 2022, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And if you remember where you were and how you felt, I had kind of a sense of relief, but also a sense of awe, a sense of, um, you know, wow, is this really happening? But then there was also this sense of, okay, what next? What happens now? Because as you know, the driving systemic factors, whether they be housing or healthcare, employment, education, relationship with the father, all those things are still very present for women and men that are choosing to have abortions. How are we going to address those things? And so I look at this time in this post-Royal era as kind of a new fight for life. That's why the name of the book is A New Fight for Life, because in many respects, the pro-life movement right now has to reimagine pro-life advocacy if we truly want to make abortion unthinkable and unnecessary. Like if if we truly want to turn off the faucet, if we truly want to change the numbers of abortion, the law is really important. It's important that laws are in place, but it's also really important that we understand that changing laws does not necessarily make people less vulnerable, although it does change lives. How do we do that? So, you know, I talk about Roe in the book, obviously, and what that means for the pro-life movement, but also talking about race and justice, because I truly believe that we have to be a people that pursues justice uh, in order to really impact people's lives and their livelihoods and that way changing really the 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 desire or the felt need to abort our children yeah that's so good and i want to go uh a little bit more into this uh question on on justice and pro-life advocacy but i want to do what i think you do in the the little preview that i was able to get at the book i think the first chapter is called the elephant in the room and uh you're you're a man, um, you know. If our listeners don't recognize that, uh, Benjamin's a man, and not only are you a man, you're you're kind of like a, a a man's man. I mean, like standout uh, college athlete, Super Bowl champion. Um, there's a, a, a at least a narrative out there that suggests that you and I shouldn't be talking about abortion at all. Um, why is it important that men actually enter this conversation? Man, yeah, that's the elephant in the room. It's like, you're a man, you don't have anything to say, stay out of our business. And I hear that, and and, and actually, you know, 
I appreciate that because men have done so much. We got to be honest. Men have done so much to uh, oppress, uh, degradate, uh, you know, treat women horribly that that narrative makes a lot of sense, to be honest with you. Um, usually I get down to the brass tacks. Uh, you know, you're a father, I'm a father. Look, we have a role when it comes to children. A child has 46 chromosomes, 23 and 23. So whether you like it or not, man, you are a part of this conversation when it comes to to life. Um, but not only that, when we look as believers in scripture and we look at the, a call to manhood and what that means as far as men being providers, protectors, priests and prophets in their homes, and what we're called to do as leaders, um, not only for our immediate family, but also for communities at large. And what we see so often is when men don't do our job. I, I had a coach, Bill Belichick, all he used to say is do your job. <laughs> Just do your job. Don't try to do anybody yeah. else. Do your job. And what we see so often well, men, either by their own volition or because of extenuating circumstances, are unable or unwilling to do their job when it comes to life. That's when families suffer. That's when women suffer. That's when children suffer. That's when communities suffer. And that's when nations suffer. And so it is imperative that men um, stand up and speak out on this issue. Many times, uh, Chris, men don't speak out because we have our own guilt or our own shame. Or, or perhaps for some of us, uh, we have not spoken out because we've used, um, you know, abortion as somewhat of a of a shield to our responsibilities, or because of what we view as a mistake. And so, men men have to talk about it, and we also have to push back on the narrative that we don't have a voice in this because we most certainly do. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, and and so I've, I'm trying not to overuse the word, uh, but there are a number of narratives uh, that that are problematic. I would suggest in the abortion space, and one of those is that pro life activists don't really care about issues of justice beyond abortion, even for people who don't necessarily see abortion as a justice issue people have this narrative that pro-life activists just want to pass abortion bans, make sure that abortion is illegal, uh, leave at that point. As a, a pro-life activist myself, I've tried to reflect on that carefully and ask myself the question, one, is that true of the, of the movement or how true that is of the movement? And to the extent that it is not true, how does the pro-life movement turn that narrative around? So can you speak into that a little bit? Number one, how true is that narrative of the pro-life movement? And to to the extent that it's not true, how do we turn it around? Yeah, I think we got to be honest and say that, you know, it is true for some people in the pro-life movement. And also it's important to understand that, you know, I believe that you and Justin, one thing that you guys say sometimes that I've heard is that, you know, we can't judge an entire movement by the loudest activists. And so the ones who have the loudest voices on either side are the ones that we sometimes attribute uh, the, their motives or their narratives to the entire movement. And that's not true. So while there are plenty of people who will stop at legislation, like for them, it is a culture war issue. It is um, a, 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 an election, a, a political issue solely. It is all about power and control and 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 turning over uh, laws and creating new ones for some that's it 
and that's what they care about. Um, then there are some who truly do care about mothers and children, but even for them, after you know a year after birth, they're not as concerned. But I would suggest uh, that there are, is a whole swath of people who may not have the have the loudest voices who understand that there's a continuum of care that has to happen, and that there's also a continuum of humanity uh, that we have to respect and honor that starts in the womb but also ends in the tomb. And so I guess I would answer that question and say, you know, as, as pro-lifers, we have to we have to push those who are, you know, solely look at this as a political issue or a pre-birth issue and say, no, there is there are so many other life issues that we need to discuss. But we also need to push those on the other side who would say, let's just talk about the baby wants to hear and say, uh, no, when did that baby first become a human being? And that was while they were in their mother's womb. Uh, I, I think that b- both things are true. And so that there has to be a turning point. And, and part of part of my hope for the book is really to give voice to those who understand that this is a justice issue and that it's important that we engage with mothers and children throughout the course of their life. And we do that through um, nonprofit organizations. Yes. You know, there's 2,700 pregnancy resource centers around the country. We do that through organizations like Human Coalition, but we also do that through the law. We do that through legislation. We do that in how, you know, even visiting you in, in, in Chicago when you when you were running for office and, and talking about the importance of of having some of these social services that that are, are a hand up, that are a helping hand during a time of need, and that we have to be aware of how all these things are connected to the life issue. Um, you know, part of what I talk about is even something like like paid leave. You know, we, we may look at paid leave and say, well, that's kind of just a political issue. Either you vote for it, or you don't vote for it. Whose money is it coming from? All those issues can be answered. But 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 what if a mother understood that I'm not going to lose my job just because I have a child? That that my that my employer and this nation cares about motherhood and cares about children to the extent that if I have to take time away to have a child, um, I will be supported in some manner. These are life issues that I think that as we make this turn, those who who are pro-lifers like yourself can offer these solutions um, that people I would say even on you know kind of the extremes could say you know that's that's actually a good thing that we should be doing. Yeah. That's so good. Uh, again, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We're here uh, with Benjamin Watson, uh, the author of the new book, The New Fight for Life, Roe, Race, and Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. Um, so the Church Politics Podcast, uh, Benjamin, we talk about politics, and abortion has been uh, kind of a political hot potato of late, probably credit, a lot of folks credit the Republicans not manifesting their red wave in the 2022 midterms to abortion. The pro-life side has lost at least six uh, state ballot initiatives in uh, the last year or so was on the ballot in the uh, Supreme Court race in, in Wisconsin, pro-life side lost. I think it had some impact even on the mayoral race here in Chicago that was just held in April. So I don't know if you speak to this much in the book, if you do talk about that, but then just speaking to this here, like how do we cause people to maintain 
a principled stance on this issue if it's going to be such a political loser? Mm, that's a good question. Um, Dr. King once said something to the effect of many people are uncomfortable with injustice, but they're unwilling to count the cost or to pay the price. And part of what we're seeing now is there's a price to be paid. So the, the, the first thing that any wise, um, you know, scripture talks about this, the first thing that a builder does is he counts the cost of the materials and counts the cost of the labor and counts the cost of his time if he's going to build something because he doesn't want to look like a fool if he only has a certain amount of materials and has to stop halfway. And for many people who, uh, Republicans, people on the right, people um, that are pro-lifers, but, but, but for them, they are retreating a bit now because the target is so large on their back because now um, the other quote-unquote side is, is uh, you know, riveted and ready <laughs> to, to, to fight back. <clears throat> we have to be willing to, to count the cost. Um, it may cost you some, some friends or some endorsements. Um, for some, it's, it's actually cost their, their, their place in politics for the time being. And so I think that, you know, to answer your question, we have to be willing to understand that life has a cost to it and that nothing that is worth fighting for comes easy. Whereas before Roe was overturned, it seemed that those on the pro-life side had something to fight for because we were focused on Roe. You could raise money because you were talking about Roe. You know, you, 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 could, you could pack out a, you know, a, a theater, an auditorium, because it was about fighting those bad people on the other side. And now the work is at the state level, where at the state level, you know, 90... What is it? 75, almost 75% of America, almost about 74% of America, abortion is still very legal. And even if you're in a state that has a six week ban or a 15 week ban, 93% of abortions occur within the first 13 weeks of pregnancy. And so even in those states where there is a ban, children are still dying. Women are still in need. All those things are still happening. And so how do we talk about this we have to be honest with ourselves we have to we have to tell that narrative and tell that story and and, and what i've seen honestly uh, inside the church outside the church it, in politics as well is there has been a sort of apathy that it said it has set set in a bit after roe was overturned but i think the hope is that now once we realize what the landscape looks like politically um you know through philanthropy all those sorts of things there will be kind of a revitalization of an understanding of no, this, this is a, you know, a fight, so to speak, that still needs to carry on. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, and I, I really hope that the, uh, that this book will speak until that moment. Cause I just, I love what you're talking about, uh, reimagining and revitalizing, uh, this, this pro-life work, um, is so critical uh, in this moment. So I think that this book is just incredibly, incredibly uh, timely. Uh, b before we, we jump off, I do want to ask, because we, we have a lot of church leaders um, and pastors who listen to the Church Politics Podcast, and a, a big part of our heart is to equip them. Uh, can you talk just for a minute about how church leaders uh, can both use the book uh, and then more generally just equip uh, folks in our churches for this this next phase of of the pro-life movement and pro-life work in America? Yeah. One of the great things about, about the book that I wanted to include was uh, study questions 
um, that can be used for small groups at the end of each chapter. Um, they're in the back of the book, but kind of to facilitate conversation because the, the book touches on some things that are going to push people in different ways. You know, talking about racial justice and racial injustice in America and how that might play into the landscape we see now when it comes to abortion from a ethnicity and demographic standpoint, perhaps could be uncomfortable for some congregations while others might be used to it. And so I include some of those, maybe talking about some of the political suggestions might be uncomfortable, but comfortable for others. Um, talking about the Imago Dei um, and the image of God should be, no matter what side of the aisle you come on as a believer, is something that we can agree upon and build upon. So one thing that church leaders can do is to use in the back of the book the, the, the study guide. But also I saw, I saw a recent, um, uh, I think it was a Pew Research uh, poll and it talked about the fact that less than 10% of churchgoers in America have heard a message on a, a abortion within the last year or so. And, and what that tells me is that we aren't speaking as church leaders from the pulpit about this issue enough. And I think there are reasons for that, probably very valid reasons. Number one, um, it's hard to decouple the issue from politics. And anytime you introduce politics into your church, <laughs> if your church is a mixed church, um, you know, politically, ethnically, that could be kind of dicey. So, so I understand that. Um, so that's one reason. Another reason, four in 10 women within our church pews have had abortions. And so I always like to think, well, there's probably four in 10 men as well in the church have had abortions. And so abortion isn't just something that happens out there. It's something that happens in here. And that includes pastors and church leadership. You know, many people are suffering or are, are, are kind of post-abortive. And so that might be another reason why it's not talked about. But I think that for pastors, it's imperative that we address this issue from a biblical perspective that does not lend itself to politics either way, but simply talks about what scripture would say and what scripture says about human beings and about the human person. And that we also understand that as church leaders, we have a powerful and vital role in turning someone's pain into their into their purpose, so to speak, and, and taking someone's um, discouragement and, and making it something that they can be used for. Um, too many people in our churches are, are, are hurting, uh, whether it's grief or whether it's shame. And the church is to be a place where there is healing that comes in. And so the encouragement of church leaders is to step out on that. And there are things to equip you, whether it's this book, there's also a Stand for Life curriculum uh, that, I, that I recorded six sessions that talk about, you know, kind of the image of God and, and men, women, children, and, you know, this issue specifically. So there are resources out there, um, but the church has to be um, at the forefront of this. And, and even if I can dig a little bit deeper on that, um, Chris, specifically, even the black church, uh, you know, in my book, I talk about the legacy of the black church as being the conscience of a nation. And we would think about so many things that have happened, not just racial civil rights in our country, but so many other civil rights issues. It was the church and it was the black church who understood what it meant to suffer and what it meant to follow God through hard times that led in so many different ways. And I truly believe that the black church, the, the, the black church tradition, but also just black church members have, um, a legacy that is needed right now 
in order to to save not only our children, um, but children and mothers and fathers and communities in general across this nation. Uh, now is the time for the Black church to step into that role again mm-hmm. in a very, very important issue. Man, that's so, so good. Uh, so glad, uh, Benjamin, that you joined uh, me on the Church Politics Podcast. Before we jump off, is there anything else that uh, we really need to get out there to Church Politics Podcast listeners about uh, the book? Yeah. Um, you know, the last thing about the book, the book release is June 20. Um, it's available on all platforms, uh, produced by, by Tyndale, but also on my website. But anywhere you can get books, Amazon, uh, it is available in hardcover and softcover, whatever floats your boat. Um, but, but I think my hope overall is that people engage and that they're willing to, to talk, that they're willing to, to be stretched, and that we understand that um, this issue um, is one, Satan wants to use this to divide. Um, he attacks life. And whether that's through the political realm or through churches, when we go back to the very beginning, he attacked life. He attacked order in man and woman, and he attacked life in the seed of the woman. This is a manifestation of that in our time. And so thankful for the opportunity to speak with you. As I, as I said before, can't, can't, I can't overemphasize how much I, I respect and appreciate you and Justin's voice. So thank you for you know, being a part of this. And also thank you for what you do through Whole Life Project. Whole Life Project, um, for those who don't know, a collection of women who are changing the narrative when it comes to abortion. But I even speak of them in the book because this is an opportunity to listen to and elevate the voices and the stories of women who are on the front lines experiencing so much of this. Yeah. That's so, so awesome. Uh, so one more time, y'all, this uh, book, this is The New Fight for Life, Roe, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. Uh, it is the newest book from Benjamin Watson. It is available everywhere on June 20th, but you can go right now and pre-order it. Uh, so as soon as you get through listening to this podcast, go pre-order uh, the book. And I think it's going to be a blessing to you um, individually and personally. I also think that this book is going to speak really powerfully into a very important moment. So thank you again, Benjamin, uh, for joining us. And we'll chat later. Thank you, sir. Talk to you later. Well, you know what it is, Ann Camp. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ until next time, Ann Kemp. Well, how at you. Dear Lord.